Okay, can we turn to Romans, but also, oddly enough, maybe Amos tonight, Amos the prophet. And I'll give you time to get there because I know you're embarrassed you forgot where that was in your Bible. You, did you, Dan? Did you forget? No, you didn't. Okay. There have been many times from this pulpit I've announced the departure from this life of many of your loved ones. And tonight I have to announce to you that my mom is now face-to-face with our Lord. And I appreciate your prayers for her in the last days of her life. She was struggling on a lot of areas, but her passing was remarkable. And she was seated in her favorite chair, having sherbet. And my sister, was, who has been joined to the hip with her for the last year or so, almost every day and night, was with her. And my other sisters joined later, but she just bowed her head. And that was it. She's answered my prayer because my prayer for my mom is that he would show his great compassion to her and she knew us all very well right to the end. And I thank you for your kindness. And the Tetelestai Phalanx has shown much kindness to my family and I, to Pam and I, and my family, my sisters, and my mom. And I thank you for that. And that's why I announce this with a broken heart and great joy. Um, my sister told me today, and I didn't know until today, that for three days before she went, she kept telling Becky she was going somewhere. And she, and she said she had a smile that she'd never seen on her face before. It was a beatific, I'm, you know, because she always used to like to go out with my dad. And she still, a couple of weeks ago, went to the American Legion to listen to big band music. She had to do that. It was, besides church, that was, and in fact, she laid out her best church clothes and said, I'm going someplace. Becky had to put them back and say, Mom, there's no church tonight, you know. But she's in church now. She's the first person I knew, and I've known her for 66 years, and I've never known anyone that could equal her graciousness and her gentleness, her sweet spirit. And I just realized how blessed I was to grow up with a mom like that. And so she was full of grace while she was here. And she's full of glory where she is now. There, as the scripture says, the name of the holy city is the Lord is there. And there, she's full of glory. And I I told my sisters that she's dancing with my father in the light of the glory of her Savior. And... Just wanted to announce that to you tonight. I, we're going to be having a service that she requested, but it won't be until January 10th down in Florida, and, and the parish has allowed me to speak for five minutes, so I'm asking you for your heartfelt prayers for that. That's going to be a, a message that's going to take at least five hours of strength to get through five minutes, so I appreciate that. But again, thank you. Uh, for all of your kindnesses you showed to her while she was here, and to me and to my family. 
Father, we pray tonight. And I pray personally, Father. And I thank you as my as I bow the knees of my heart, my mouth. Gladly confesses that Jesus is Lord, that Yahweh is Yeshua. And Father, I joyfully present myself to you for the duration of my days here, that I may make known your Son as you have made him known to me. And I thank you for this Word of God family. who are meaning more and more to me as days go by, and we thank you for this privilege. May the thoughts of our heart and may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable to you, Father, and pleasing to you. And I present my body to you as your willing slave because you are the king of kings and slavery to you is the greatest freedom imaginable in this world. And we thank you for this freedom. We pray that the word that we receive tonight will be embodied in our living before you and that it will make us free and it will make free those to whom we speak in this world and those with whom we converse and those with whom we associate and even those who are enemies of our message. May we bless those who persecute us, speak highly of those who slander us, and do extraordinary acts of grace through your spirit toward those who are embittered. And we pray that you will, in fact, pull from the roots out any toxic roots of bitterness that are keeping people from receiving the message of your universal kindness and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. There are several things that I'm thinking about with Romans, and this one has really captivated me because it's very personal to me about what it means to be a slave of Christ Jesus. And so tonight I want to speak upon the implications of the phrase that Paul opens Romans with because they reverberate throughout not only Romans, but throughout the whole New Testament. The implications of the phrase, Paul, a slave, part three. We've shown how that had great impact on the Roman Gentile believers in Rome because they were very aware in an honor and shame culture of the masters and slaves, of the slaves that were scattered throughout Rome and who were taken slaves by military conquest, and some of whom were imperial slaves who had great promotion in the Roman Empire, and how there is a, there's a great rift between the many churches in Rome, house churches in the suburbs, tenement churches in the slums, churches among the bureaucratic imperial bureaucracy in the workplaces, there was terrible fracture between those who were called the weak in faith 
who judged those who were the strong in faith, the strong in faith, who despised those who were the weak in faith. And they attacked each other for their liturgy. Some were too ritualistic. They kept days. They kept holy days. They kept certain diets. They were despised by those who didn't feel any need to do that. There was a tremendous fracture, as there is today in contemporary Christianity. And I believe that Romans has the message to bring healing to those fractures and healing to the cancer-ridden cells even in the body of Christ that don't, that cancer does not belong. And the word of God has the power to burn it out. So the implications of Paul, a slave, has a second significance, I call it, although by no means is this secondary significance. It attaches to Paul's self-identification as a slave of Jesus Christ in Romans 1.1. Jewish Christians in Rome and the Gentile Christians who had an intimate association with the synagogue, and there were many, they were called God-fearers, Gentiles who gravitated toward the synagogue. They saw something of great value in the practices of Judaism. They were attracted by the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, the true God of Israel. And they would know from their attachment to the synagogues, as well as many of the Jewish Christians would know, the significance that the term slave related to the prophets of Yahweh in the Old Testament. They were called slaves. And that's why Amos 3.7 is so significant. We usually look to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 as the key signature verse of Romans, and we're not far off to do that. The righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. And, of course, that's Jesus Christ. And he lives in resurrection following his faithfulness to the death of the cross for all mankind. And the righteous one lives by faithfulness, and we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Habakkuk 2.4, then, is one of the signature verses that applies to Romans. But right in this first phrase of Romans, we also have, I think, a very significant allusion to Amos 3.7, with Paul saying, a slave of Christ Jesus. We ought to stop right here, then. And consider that the astute Jewish Christian readers or auditors, and they did probably more read or hear than read Romans, the epistle. People like Prisca, Jewish Christians, and Aquila, and people like Miriam, as we read about in Romans 16, they may have already detected an allusion to Amos 3.7 here by that interpretive technique that we taught so extensively in Revelation called Gezerah Shawah, which is when in exegesis a word or a phrase, we call it maybe a catchword, a catchphrase or a keyword or a key phrase triggers an echo or triggers the memory or reminiscence of another verse. And there is a corollary or a correlation between those verses. Gezerah Shawah. And we have that with the word doulos, Dulos for slave, because in the Septuagint translation, the LXX we like to abbreviate it as, we have this in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Because the Lord God, and please note that 
is the most profound and the most complete address of the God of Israel here. The Lord Elohim, or Yahweh rather, and God Elohim, both Yahweh and Elohim are used here. Because the Lord God will definitely not do anything. There's a strong emphasis here. The Lord God will definitely not do anything without revealing. And here we have, I think, the catchword that is the most powerful interpretive tool that we have for Romans. The word is apocalypse, A-P-O-K-U-L. U-P-S-E, Apocalypse, let me spell that a little better. I'm just a little off base a little tonight, but A-P-O-C-A-L-U-P-S-E, Apocalypse, and that, of course, is Apocalypse. Stunning, shocking, universal disclosure of Jesus Christ is what we're dealing with here. Because the Lord God will definitely not do anything without revealing, that's Apocalypto, his counsel, counsel here, Pideon in the Greek translation is sometimes translated secret in the sense that God lets the upright or his prophets in on his secret counsel. Proverbs 3.32 says he reveals to the upright his secret counsel. His secret counsel relates to his mystery. And I hope to bring something about that on Sunday morning. The mystery. A lot of times I've found scholars sort of pass over it. Exegetes kind of stiff arm the term. And some people mistranslate the term mystery. But it's a profound interpretive key to Romans. And not only Romans. All of Paul's epistles. Because the Lord God will definitely not do anything without revealing His counsel, and that means his secret counsel. It's sort of like, come on in here into the secret holy of holies, and I want to whisper to you what I'm going to do. And he tells Abraham what he's going to do. He says, Abraham is my friend because I tell my friends what I'm going to do. Abraham was a prophet. And he was a friend of the Lord. And so the prophets were friends. And he would call them into his secret chamber. And so because the Lord God will definitely not do anything without revealing his counsel to his slaves. There it is, the word. Paul said, Paul, a slave. He wasn't just saying it to relate to the Gentile Christians in Rome who considered themselves the strong in faith. But he said it, that had, it must have had terrific reverberations in the Jewish Christians in Rome who would have immediately perked their ears up and said, ah, a slave of Jesus Christ would mean, first of all, that Jesus Christ is the Lord God. And it would relate, secondly, to the fact that Paul is a slave or a prophet. He's identifying himself. He's aligning himself. He's in continuity with the message of the prophets because he is a slave of Jesus Christ. He is one of the slaves or prophets of Yahweh Elohim. So there's a continuity. And we know there's a continuity there because in Romans 1, 2, 
It is all about God's son. His announcement, God's announcement to the world is all about his son. And it's his, the gospel is found where? In the writings of the prophets. And this is also found at the very end of Romans in 1625 and 26. The mystery, the revealed mystery. The gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is found first in advance in the writings of the prophets. And so Paul aligns himself with the prophets and calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Here, then, right in the first phrase of Romans, we have a profound disclosure. And we don't have to wait to get to Romans 1.17 to find a key echo in Romans from the Old Testament prophets. And, of course, you remember, and I think God struck this note for us, apocatastasis in Revelation. Because where that word is found and the only place where that word is found is Acts 3.21. And there Peter announces that this was the message of all the prophets of God. Paul is aligning himself, therefore, with the prophets and aligning himself with all the prophets of God as the slaves of God to whom God reveals his secret mystery or his mysteries. Paul is aligning himself, therefore, with a message that is universal. And the whole point of Paul in the first few chapters, Paul is bringing about, well, we call it homardiology. And I'm getting ahead of myself here because I didn't really want to go here tonight, but what the heck. Homardiology. That's the study of sin. It's the theology of sin. For Paul, homardiology, there is a universal homardiology. And that means that all have sinned. Not only all have sinned because all are in Adam, but all have responsibly sinned. The whole of the human race is sinful throughout. And this universal homardiology sets us up for Romans 5 through 8, a universal soteriology, a universal salvation rooted not in the faith of man, not in the personal decisions of people to believe, but in the slavery of Jesus Christ to his father, in the obedience of Jesus Christ as a slave to the extent of death by crucifixion. And if Paul can show so dramatically and every time he quotes from, chat, from the Old Testament, he quotes from passages in which there is a distinction between the wicked and the righteous, the wicked and the righteous. And you know what Paul does every time? He drops the distinction and shows everyone is wicked because he's revealing something that only popped in the New Testament, and that is that the line of righteous and wicked runs through us all. It isn't I hate Esau, so he goes to hell, and I love Jacob, and he goes to heaven. Jacob and Esau are twins in all of our wombs. The line runs through us all, and the old man has to be put off. The new man has to be put on. The, new, the line runs through us all. People that have been interviewed who are under horrific dictatorships like Hitler, like Stalin, like Pol Pot, like others in our, that are approaching our own time, when they are interviewed as the people that are persecuted and oppressed, they do not malign their oppressors. They say, under the pressure of oppression, we found that the line runs through all of us. The things they did to survive, and to survive meant to betray. The things that they did 
under that pressure of which they are terribly ashamed showed that it wasn't just the horrible bestial dictator that needs to go to hell, but the line runs through us all. The righteous and the wicked are separated in a judgment of salvation, a salvific judgment. So Paul is doing this because he's trying to get at a situation in Rome and a situation in our own time. Prove the universality of sinfulness. And let people experience that truth of a universal homardiology. I guess there's a TV show called This Is Us. Well, if you read Romans, this is us. All sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. This is us in sin. If Paul can show the universal sinfulness of Jews and Gentiles and barbarians and that barbarians are on the same level as the refined religionist, if he can show the universality of sin, there's already a unity in our universal sinfulness, in our universal enmity against God. We were his enemies. We were ungodly. And then if he can show that God's grace justifies the ungodly, then we have a unity in God's salvific mercy. Then where, does, where do divisions fit then? Where do the judgments come in then? Where does a despising of one's brother because he, form, he, he follows ritualistic things and honors one day above another? And where, where is that now? Where is it? If we're all universally concluded to be under sin and condemned and under sin and in, under death, and then all of a sudden God shows his mercy to all, where can the old man breathe? Where can the unrighteous in us live and that's why Paul says put off the old man not judge other people because they're worse than you not put yourself under a group bias in which you must desperately try for your own cultural superiority over other groups whether it's gender ethnic racial religious denominational this is the disaster of our time group bias multiplied by thousands and so in a culture of honor and shame we have a great feeling of superiority when we see people who have sinned in the past and they come up on the television now this one and this one and this one shame 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 and what we do with that shame is look at that shameful person and we feel honored to not be so shamed. We need to take a very good look at something that the Supreme Court would unanimously call obscene today. And that's a crucified Savior on a cross at Calvary. Shame. Obscenity. Ungodliness. And that revealed ours, the whole human races. But then look at resurrection. And see the honor and the glory given to that man, that crucified man. For he was exalted and given a name above every other name. I'm glad to be his slave. And I'm sure not perfect at it because there's days when I buck against his control and his loving influence. And who doesn't? If you don't, then perhaps it's your time to go 
to heaven. Because obviously you're already fitted for it. You know what? We're all vessels fitted for destruction, vessels of wrath. That's what Paul's showing. Wrath is what we all are fitted for. We were all the children of wrath by nature. But we're, God made us alive while we were dead in sins. You see, once we realize universal homardiology, and then we realize the universal soteriology, then there is a possibility for unity. And if there is unity, then there is the greatest possible momentum and impetus for mission and for the gospel to go forth where it's not been heard, not received before. So then, here's a profound disclosure. In the Septuagint of Amos 3.7, we have the word apocalypto, like we do in Romans 1.17 and 18. We have the word doulos, only it's in the plural, in Romans 1.1. We have the word paideon, which means secret counsel, which is equivalent with the mystery in Romans 16.25. We have the phrase, the prophets, as we do in Romans 1-2 and Romans 16-26. Notice the pincer movement. The prophets. And they are called slaves. Revelation 10-7, where the announcement comes, now the mystery of God, time will be no more. Now the mystery of God will be made known. Romans, make that Revelation 10, 7. As God revealed to his slaves, the prophets, Amos 3, 7, alluded to one of the 750 or more allusions in Revelation to Amos 3, 7. What a connection between Paul and John. And so we have... Mystery, shown again by its use in Revelation 10.7, where the scripture speaks of the mystery of God being completed as he announced through his slaves, the prophets. In short, the word doulos then carries enormous connotations. The attentive Jewish Christian readers, as well as the well-taught Gentile Christian auditors, of the epistle to the Romans, many of them slaves themselves among the Gentile Christians may well have picked up on this and appreciated it. Most importantly, the alignment of Paul with the prophets of the Lord God shows that he has received by divine insight, apocalypse into the mystery of God, and as a result, he has submitted to Jesus Christ as a slave, making Jesus Christ equivalent to the Lord God. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, is like the prophets who were slaves of the Lord God. There's a cont continuation, a continuity. The Bible is a single narrative. It is, if you want to go into bibliology, the Bible is a single master narrative. It coheres as the depiction of Jesus Christ and his universal saving significance. It coheres together in the announcement of the world's sinfulness, universal sinfulness, 
but it also announces with stark audacity. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sinfulness of the world. He takes away universal sinfulness. That's what Romans is all about. Romans 1 through 4. Romans 1, 18, especially through 3.20. And by the time we get to 3.19, the whole world shuts up. The whole world shuts its mouth. And then we have a prelude in Romans 3.21 through 31 of the heart of the heart of the message. All of this is to get at a local problem and a problem that's contemporary to our own times, too. So, in short, this word has significance throughout Romans. Doesn't mean I've stalled in Romans 1 1, it means that I've seen a tsunami go throughout all the way to Romans 16. Most Many scholars, I might as well tell you, this is Thursday night, you're a grown-up audience. There are many scholars that are the best I've read. Some of them say Romans 16, 25 to 27 is inauthentic. Inauthentic. Some say it doesn't belong there. Others say it's a postscript, but it belongs after 1423. Others say it's a postscript or something Paul wrote, but he stuck it in, in Romans 15, 33. Many of them say it doesn't belong where it belongs. I say that not only does it not not belong, it belongs very much at the end of Romans, but more than that, I believe Romans 16, 25 to 27 to be the crown of the collection of all of Paul's epistles, which are what? The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of the mystery of God. And if you want to go all the way back to an early epistle, like Ephesians 1.10, realizing that that mystery of God is God's intention to recapitulate, and that doesn't just mean redo, it means transfigure and transform all things in Christ. So not only is Romans 16.25 to 27 some inauthentic thing, or some added thing or some afterthought or some P.S. this, it, I believe, is the crown of the collection of what Second Peter 3, 15, and 16 calls all of Paul's epistles, Romans being arguably the last and the most climactic. And the pastoral epistles agree with this. In all throughout the pastoral epistles, there is a recognition of great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, raised up into glory, proclaimed in the world, believed on in the world, proclaimed among all the nations. Titus 2.11, also salvation of God or the grace of God has appeared and it says simply soteria for all men soteria for all mankind salvation for all mankind because he's the savior of all not only those who believe 
but of all mankind, especially those that believe, not exclusively those that believe. The, ra- the line runs through us all. Second Timothy 2.13, if we, meaning anybody in the human race, does not believe, God remains faithful. He honors the faithfulness of his son. He cannot deny himself. Universal homardiology, universal soteriology, the impact, humility that maintains the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And if that's maintained, guess what? This gospel is shouted. Missiology, that's another thing. Missiology, M-I-S-S-I-O-L-O-G-Y, the study of missions. Mission to those who have never heard. Mission to the neighbor. Mission to the Muslim. Mission to the, Bo- to the Buddhist. Mission to the Hindu. Mission to the atheist. Mission to the neighbor. Today I was walking and it was, it's one of my favorite things, walk around, do the hills. I have a 5H workout program. It's called Hit the Hills Hard with heavy hands, 5-H. It's my 5-H club. But there were people a couple doors down. They were moving in. They'd been moving in for a couple of days or moving. I couldn't tell whether they're moving in or moving out. And so the guy was in the back of the truck, and I, and I said to him, are you moving in to the neighborhood? And he said, no, we're, we're moving these people out. And I said, well, I was going to welcome you to the neighborhood if you are moving in. And then he laughed a little bit, and then I turned around again after I step, took a few more steps, and I, I went up to him, and he shook my hand, and I shook his hand, and I said, welcome to the neighborhood anyways, even though you're only here for two days. And he loved it. It was great. It was actually, a, it was strange, but it was, weird. It, was a, it was a good time to have that little rapport in the middle of the day, believe me. But to the stranger, they thought Jesus was a stranger, didn't they? When he came into Jerusalem and they, they were walking to Emmaus, probably to find the memorial, the last military victory that a messianic figure wrought, Judas Maccabees in Emmaus. They were on the way to Emmaus because they just had a failed Messiah. So they want to go find the kind of a Messiah they're looking for. Judas the hammer, Maccabees. You can't touch this. Never mind. But anyways, on the way, somebody draws up to him. Says, what are, you, what are you guys sad about anyways? You're acting very sad as you're walking along talking here. Well, we were followers of someone who claimed to be the Christ, and he was crucified. And Jesus said, really? I, and they said, what are you, a stranger? Were you, you must be a stranger in these parts. You don't know that. And he was a stranger to their sorrow. Because their sorrow was misplaced. He was risen from the dead and walking with them. So you never know. The the whole point is, you never know. Sometimes people entertain angels when strangers are around. Sometimes. So then, I could tell you a lot about that, but I won't right now. But this should not be missed nor should the significance of the climactic Romans 1132 be missed you'll never forget that number 1132 1132 1132 
God's mystery has to do with his intention to have mercy upon all. This is in keeping with Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, in which the mystery of God's will is to sum up everything in Christ, both things on heaven and things on earth, weak in faith believers and strong in faith believers. In Romans, the epistle, the slave and apostle of Christ Jesus is proclaiming Jesus Christ according to the apocalyptic divine disclosure of the universal sinfulness of humanity and the universal triumphant mercy of God on all. But Paul has, and here's the point, this is what we've got to get to here. Paul has a specific purpose in this. He's not just announcing this universal soteriology. He's not just showing this universal homardiology so that he can be a theologian. He's doing this to serve a very important purpose. It is in order to curb the arrogant enthusiasm of group biases among the saints in Rome that are meeting in their various house and tenement churches. At the heart of the heart of the cosmos diabolicus of the time, Paul has aimed the arrow of his gospel. This apostolic exhortation of to humility, which we find in Romans 12:3 emphatically, aided by the omnipotent persuasiveness of the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, would in turn produce unity. I like to call it C-U-I. Christian unit integrity, a unity among the factions, and a healing of the fractured saints in Rome. In this case, Romans the epistle certainly qualifies a word that God sends to heal his people. Romans the epistle, define it as this if you want. It's the word God sends to heal his people. Psalm 107.20, and I mean now. And I mean individually, and I mean group. It's a letter by which Yahweh speaks peace to his people. Define it that way, if you will. Yahweh speaks peace to his people. When Jesus rose from the dead and walked into the room of his cowering and divided disciples, he said, peace. He speaks peace. If you know of a situation that is chaotic, bizarre even in its horrific implications, Yahweh can speak peace into that situation. His son was nailed to a tree. And his son was laid in a tomb. And his son came triumphantly forth from that tomb. He can speak peace into your situation. Perhaps the exposition of Romans in this light then will have the same effect on the factiousness and the fractures in the body of Christ today. So it should not be missed that the impact of this healing and the promotion of this humility unto unity, and there is no unity among a group without humility among individuals, This will greatly aid in the advancement of the gospel, which is the saving power of God, to places where the name of Jesus has either not yet been heard or is only spoken as a curse. 
in the specific local case of the situation of the saints in Rome, unity there would most certainly be a boon and not a bane to Paul's missionary outreach to Spain. That was not poetic on purpose. Paul intends to come to Rome. He's not secretive, but forthright about his intention to receive some fruit from them. He said, I hope to receive some fruit from you. It doesn't mean I hope you get saved by my message. He said, I hope I receive some support, some tactical, logistical support from you because I'm going to Spain. That completes the arc of his mission that began with Jerusalem and went all the way to a place called Illyricum, which is somewhere probably in Eastern Europe. And he wanted to go through to Spain. If he got to Spain and to those people whom the Jews and the Gentiles considered to be some other category called barbarians, then he would have completed his mission to bring the obedience of faith to all the nations. And that would mean that because all the nations had some within them that believed, that was a forecast of all the nations and all people believing in Jesus Christ, which will happen in the parousia when every eye sees him. When every knee genuflects, when every mouth acknowledges Yahweh as Yeshua. And so we have to love our Christian friends who don't believe that that's going to happen. Our Christian unbelieving friends who don't believe and sometimes reject with passion. And sometimes warn those hearing it with deep warnings. We must love them too. Because they haven't done yet what God says all will do. They have not, as much as they say they have, they have not acknowledged Yeshua to be Lord. Because to acknowledge him as Lord is to acknowledge his universal saving significance. They haven't done it. And they're shocked and amazed that you have. So you love them. If they speak evil of you, or if they speak evil of me, don't speak evil of them. Bless those who persecute. Speak well of them. If they ask you for your, for your outer coat, give them your jacket too, is, is a metaphorical way of saying, do works of astonishing kindness toward people that are evilly disposed toward you. You'd be surprised what it might do. After all, God performed a rather kind act in giving his son for a world that was universally hostile to him. So, the whole purpose of the present study called Romans, the epistle, is to show that Paul, the imperial slave of Christ Jesus, proclaims Jesus Christ according to the apocalyptic mystery of God, which is to show mercy to all. And that is in order to address a very practical, particular set of problems in Rome and by solving them to greatly advance the gospel to those who have not yet heard. Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 15 in Romans 15, 21 in that connection. It also addresses the problem of the heart of every individual. That in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Got to face that before I face there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. 
So this is the very important missiological aspect of Romans. Now, I've told you before, and the more I read this, the more I'm profoundly grateful for this scholar, Robert Jewett. I I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, J-E-W-E-T-T. One of the most notable modern commentators on Romans. And I respect the fact that he's gutted it out for 26 years in studying Romans and then six more years to turn a thousand-page commentary into a shorter commentary for fools like me. The gospel is for the wise and the foolish. It's for barbarians. And I consider myself to be not only foolish but a barbarian. I'm a barbaric foolish person in myself. So if there's any refinement, I owe that to my mother. Now, that, we must owe that ultimately to the Lord. If, he, if any gentleness, if there's any meekness, if there's any consolation in Christ, then there is. And if there's any meekness or if there's any gentleness or if there's any patience or faithfulness in us, it's Christ's in us. Robert Jewett is very helpful in showing Paul's practical intent in revealing God's triumphant, universal mercy. I like his stuff so much I can only read about three pages and then have to back up and say, wait a minute, I need to take a walk to absorb this. Same thing when I read Fleming Rutledge, especially her last two chapters. I cheated. Went to the chapter called Recapitulation. Kind of rung a bell. But Robert Jewett, in his book, and to those of you that are aspiring scholars, I do recommend his book, Romans, A Shorter Commentary. On page 157, listen to this. This is just a section of what I'm reading every day, which is why I I just come to you sometimes rather amazed. In Romans 11.32, I cheated, went ahead a little bit. To Romans 11.30. I do that with everybody. Karl Barth, Leander Keck, all the people that do these wonderful commentaries. I jump up to 11.32 because if, if they disappoint me there, I'm going to throw the book away. He says this, and this again is Robert Jewett, page 157 in his book, Romans, a shorter commentary. Quote, The reduplication of all, the word all, in this verse is the climactic expression of one of the most important themes of the letter, salvation for all, found in 1.5, and 1.18. This will be on the website with all the verses, so don't try to get them all. 2.9 to 10. 3.9, 3.12, 3.19, 3.20, 3.19, 3.20, 3.22, 23, 4.11, 4.16, 5.12, 5.18, 6.3, 8.14, 9.5, 9.6, 9.7, 9.17, 10.11-13, 10.18, and 10.26, for example, the word all. As James Dunn, that
climaxing in the final, quote, reconciliation of the whole world to God through the triumph of mercy. The expectation of universal salvation in this verse is indisputable. Regardless of the logical problems it poses for systematic theologians. What is usually overlooked, however, is that this doctrinal summary serves the purpose of overcoming cultural biases so as to clear the way to support the Spanish mission as the means of this global reconciliation. In Paul's view, theology is not an end in itself, but the handmaiden of an evangelical mission that requires, I love this, that requires the abandonment of earned honor. If God confines all to sin, then there is no further basis for superiority claims. And if he has mercy on all, then the conversion of the entire human race can be offered without imperial designs. This guy has got a couple things going for him. One, insight. Two, from God. So we've been considering the implications of the self-identification of Paul as a slave of Christ Jesus. Messiah, Jesus, both for the situation in Rome at the time and for Romans, the epistle as a whole, we've discovered three notable things. One, this identifier, that is a slave of Christ Jesus, would have resonated with the Roman auditors. I say auditors because they're going to hear this, not read it, most of them. They're going to hear it more than once. This identifier, Paul a slave, would have resonated with the Roman auditors who were acquainted with slavery and especially with imperial slavery, slavery to a king, an emperor, someone who claims universal salvific power like Caesar. Two, the self-identification of Paul as a slave of Messiah Jesus aligns him with the prophets of the Lord God of Israel who never acts without first apocalyptically revealing his secret counsel or the mystery of his intent to them. The second implication then that I'm speaking about tonight is enormous as far as interpretive power for Romans And it reveals the supreme significance of the so-called postscript at the other pole of this epistle, Romans 16, 25 to 27. What makes my commentary different, which is our commentary together, Tetelestai Phalanx, what makes it different from all other commentaries is we're taking something that was rejected by a lot of commentators and making that the heart of the matter and making it the central interpretive phrase for all of Romans. The light, in other words, that shines on the stage when Linus says, lights, please. 
the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse, the disclosure of a mystery. The mystery is already found in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. The intent of God, his resolute determination, his unstoppable plan to sum up everything in Christ, and that means make everything be comprised of his son so that he views every creature in the apocatastasis in the same way that he views his son. And every creature responds to the father in exactly the same way that the son responds to his father, that they may be one father, just like you and I are one. And that God ultimately, (laughs) fight it if you will, he's going to be all in all. If I've only got five minutes to speak about my mom, that might come up. Maybe. I don't know, though. I really don't. Third thing, and I'll close with this. The slave of Messiah Jesus alluded to the slaves of the Lord God in Amos 3.7. If Paul is alluding to Amos 3.7, and I've not read a commentary yet that says that he was there. And if I couldn't get anything a little different from the commentaries, I'd just tell you, read the commentaries. But what we're doing together here is not only preaching messages and receiving them and fellowshipping around them. We're actually, what God is actually doing, I think he's producing a commentary here. I wouldn't call it a comment. I wouldn't call it a commentary by Rick Knapp. I would call it a tetelestai commentary on Romans. Because we're a team. I could get holed up somewhere and write a commentary. But I like doing a back and forth with you. Because there's something about that collaboration, something about that fellowship, something about that face-to-face fellowship where the fullness of joy is experienced as John said it would in Second John, verse 12. That produces insights. God loves it because wherever his people are gathered together in unity, he commands a blessing. And the blessing is life, life, life. It's what my mom anticipated. She didn't know, but she was going to a party, which is life forevermore. Life, life, life forevermore. Life forevermore. And we're not supposed to know what it's like on the other side. And when we get to the other side, like my mom did and like Blaze did recently, and like others are doing, when they get to the other side, they'll say, Well, Knapp wasn't really wrong, but the half hasn't been told by him. He wasn't wrong, but man, there's so much more than he's, you know, no matter how we say it, no matter who you read, no matter if it's Karl Barth or Marcus, his son, or any preacher, even Paul himself, the half, when we get there, we'll say, wow, that wasn't far off, but man, only the, not even the half was told. And let me tell you something about this ministry, about the ministry that God gave to me, a sinner. This ministry, the half has not been told yet. The half that's not been told is about to be told, and it's greater than the first half. Now, if Paul's alluding to a 3-7 of Amos, and I think pretty much he is, 
There's nothing to conclusively suggest that he's not then. To balance this illusion of Paul with the slaves of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is at the same time to align Christ Jesus or identify Christ Jesus with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. If Paul is aligned as a slave of his, as the prophets were aligned as slaves to Yahweh Elohim, that only not makes Paul in the line of the prophets, that makes Jesus Christ identity equal to that of the Lord God of Israel. So if you want to teach the deity of Christ, it comes in funny ways. It doesn't come like Paul coming out and saying, well, the, this is what the Council of Chalcedon is going to say. He's one person with two natures and do the whole thing. It's going to come at you in ways like this tonight, in unexpected ways. Paul is in essence then a prophet of God to whom God revealed his mystery. And Christ Jesus is in essence the Lord God and the Lord God's Christ at once. He is the Lord God and he is the Christ of the Lord God. All about whom is the mystery. For the mystery of God's will is that he intends, resolves, and determines to sum up, or to use Irenaeus's Latin word, recapitulato, recapitulate, which means not just do over, but radically transfigure all things in Christ. Paul, the slave of Messiah, then has equal significance, and this is what I'll cl- really close with, he has, this phrase has equal significance, though differently appropriated by Roman Gentile Christians on the one hand, and on the other hand, Roman Jewish Christians. So equal significance, though differently appropriated. The gospel may be differently appropriated in different cultural settings, in different denominational settings, but it's still appropriated. And that's the point. And so, in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew versus Greek. There is no slave versus free person. There is no male versus female. As the trend is today, to topple any male authority figures so that there can be a matriarchal society. Can that be good? Maybe. I'd have to study matriarchal societies, societies ruled by women, to find out if they're superior to societies generally ruled by men. I don't know. I like a society ruled by God through Jesus Christ. It's called the kingdom of God. Now, in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew versus Greek, no slave versus free, no male versus female, no learned versus barbarian, because even the Scythian who had the habit of eating meals out of cups made from the skulls of its conquered enemies, Scythians are in Christ. Neither slave nor free, nor, Paul said, nor barbarian, nor even Scythian, Colossians 3.11. You see, you might, you, you might even get down to the place where you say, okay, I guess I'm sinful like the barbarians, but I'm still not as bad as the Scythians. My ashtrays are made of glass, not the tops of people's heads. No. 
it's really kind of humbling to realize really i mean we say it we say it's romans road and it's this sinner's prayer and all the rest of it but it's really not fun to realize what it means that we are all sinful people equally And so, not only is the Scythian in Christ, no insult to the people from Spain, but Paul intends even for the Spaniard to be in Christ. Just kidding. He wants to get to Spain because the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians there, Jew and Gentile, consider people in Spain barbaric. But I love what Paul says in Romans 1.14, and it's really as much of a key verse as 1.16. I am a debtor to the Jew and the Greek and the barbarian. So I plan to come to where Jews and Greeks congregate or not to receive some fruit from you so that I can get to those that you like to call barbarians. I'm a debtor to all of them. I owe them a hearing. Because I'm called, Paul said, as a slave of Christ Jesus to bring about the obedience which is faith among all the nations. Because that will herald the coming of Christ when the obedience of faith among the nations will be the obedience of faith of all the nations. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We see a tremendous explosion underwater in this word, a slave of Christ Jesus. And that explosion has risen to the surface and caused a tsunami wave that has ridden all the way to the end of Romans and all the way to that glorious Christian hymn. He became a slave, and as a slave, He became obedient, even to the extent of death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, so that at the name Yeshua, every knee will genuflect willingly. Every tongue will sing praises, Paul says, and acknowledge full of praise that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father meaning that will result in the glorification of God because he will become all in all. Thank you, Father, that our future is your future, that our future is the future of Jesus Christ, that he has taken us to himself. And we are grateful for that beyond measure. 